you to open your Bibles now to Acts chapter 18. Acts 18, page 1102 of your Pew Bibles. And I would encourage you to open the Bibles that are in front of you because um, the, the way that I've been preaching many of these sermons in Acts is to, to take small chunks um, and do mini-sermons. And tonight it'll be three very miniature sermons, uh, four or five paragraphs each really, in three sections of this passage that we'll read it. So you'll want your Bibles open because we'll read a passage and then reflect on it for just a little while, read another and reflect on it, and then do that a third time as well. So Acts chapter 18 is where we are here at Ammon Valley in our evening sermon series through the book of Acts. And this is the part of Acts where the Apostle Paul is undertaking his second missionary journey. It is um, a a thrilling journey, as sometimes we would hear that and we would think of the map that is often in the back of our Bibles and we would just remember uh, purple and green and yellow lines that sort of go to cities that maybe we're not all that familiar with. But when you actually read the stories of what Paul is doing in each of these towns, there is um, a lot happening through the work of the Spirit, through Paul's ministry. And um, we're going to read about what happens when Paul arrives in the city of Corinth for the first time. So, of course, this sets the stage for what Paul would later write to the city of Corinth. Um, He actually wrote four letters to the people of Corinth, and we have um, two of those letters in our scriptures um, today. And so, uh, having already prayed for illumination, we'll start reading. We'll read verses 1 through 4 to start of Acts chapter 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we find here an introduction to two characters who are going to come alongside Paul for part of his missionary journey, Priscilla and Aquila, these married couple with rhyming names who make their names uh, even more memorable. They were faithful servants of Christ and had come to Corinth, this passage says, because Claudius had expelled the Jews from Rome. Now that sounds a little bit like some Bible trivia that we could easily glance past and just kind of move on to the next thing where we hear, of course, like we often do in these passages of Paul's going to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the Greeks who would gather there. But I want to focus on that detail just for a moment of how Priscilla and Aquila arrived at Corinth because I think it can teach us two things about God's will and about also the reliability of the scriptures. And so first, this information that Priscilla and Aquila were expelled from Rome by the emperor Claudius confirms the historical reliability of the Bible. And so that's where I want to start in our our application of this passage, that we can trust that the Bible is a historically reliable account of real events that have happened in this world. According to ancient historians, who are, who are writing um, extra-biblical literature, uh, who are writing at this time, there is a recorded exile of Jewish people 
from the city of Rome in the year 49 AD. It's uh, believed um, quite confidently that from January of 49 to January of the year 50, the emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from the city of Rome. And so we have that detail here in Acts chapter 18 as well. And so the biblical narrative overlaps so well with um, the information that we find from ancient historians. And again, you could say, well, this sounds just like some trivia, but it actually gets very interesting to the, as to the reason why the Jewish people were expelled from Rome. So there's a fascinating connection with that diaspora from Rome with the arrival of Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth. The historian Suetonius wrote that the Jews were exiled from Rome because of some controversy surrounding a man named Crestus. And so there's controversy in the Jewish-Roman community surrounding teaching about a man named Crestus at the time. And you can see the word there, the, the name of, of that person that Suetonius um, recorded was stirring controversy in some way. And so it's actually believed that Suetonius didn't fully understand the situation and that that reference to Crestus is actually a reference to Christus, the Christ, Jesus. And so there was conflict in many towns throughout the Roman Empire at this time concerning Christus, who is the Christ, who is Jesus, who is the identity of this man who lived and walked in Jerusalem and in Galilee, not all that long before, only um, a little bit more than a dozen years before these events were happening. So this happened regularly in towns in the Roman Empire. There would be controversy among the Jewish people concerning the identity of Jesus. It's perfectly logical to believe that Priscilla and Aquila were preaching the gospel of Christ in Rome, the gospel of the Christus, and this caused much turmoil in the Jewish community, and they were expelled from that city, and that's even recorded in extra-biblical historical literature. So, the witness of Roman historians concerning these events confirms Luke's account here, and it gives us actually a very specific date to these events that it's very likely this story happened in the year 49 AD. So, why would this be important? Well, unlike other faiths, the Christian faith is rooted in historical events. Unlike faiths like um, Buddhism or New Ageism or Hinduism, the Christian religion depends on historical events for um, the root of our faith and for our beliefs. Um, of course, the central historical event being the death and resurrection of Jesus, where the Apostle Paul says to the church in Corinth, if Jesus didn't raise from, wasn't raised from the dead in the flesh, then our faith is in vain. If that actual historical event did not really happen, then the Christian religion is to be pitied above all, all religions. And so, not only does the Bible tell us about historical figures like Caesar Augustus and Pontius Pilate and the Emperor Claudius, but the scripture accounts are in line with extra-biblical resources of the time. So in that little detail, I would hope that your trust in the reliability of the Bible is confirmed and even strengthened. 
a little detail that you could glance past pretty quickly, but actually has a lot of historical evidence for it. The second thing we can learn from this little passage, the first four verses of Acts 18, is that to be a Christian in the first century was to embrace suffering. It was to embrace a life that was often lived on the move. It was to embrace, um, even for some, martyrdom. We've seen how this has been true of Paul's ministry. And Paul needed to be a, a courageous minister of the gospel to go into each of these towns. He had already been beaten up, been, been flogged in public. He had already endured great persecution, um, having to be restored by his friends. They would go find him outside the city, all beaten and battered, and they would kind of fix him up and, and send him on to the next town. And this is happening not just for the Apostle Paul, but we here also here. Um, it was happening for Priscilla and Aquila as well, as they were expelled from their home in Rome. So, we'll also see that that is the case for the Apostle Paul in Corinth as we continue reading in just a moment. But we can dwell on this point just, just for a few seconds. That to be a Christian, not just in the first century, but for many cultures throughout the last 2,000 years has been to embrace a life of suffering. Of suffering in this world for the promises of the kingdom of God. So just as experiencing peace and joy give evidence to the existence of God, so also persecution points to the existence of the devil who hates the church and is working to ruin the church. Passages like this should, I think, first prompt us to be thankful for the freedom and comfort that we enjoy today. We can be thankful for those good things because they are gifts from God for us. But at the same time, the Christian should not be afraid or surprised when we suffer shame or when we encounter opposition to the word of God, as Paul so often did, as Priscilla and Aquila did in Rome, and as many other believers throughout the centuries have. Our comfort and our freedom today is exceptional. And suffering is so often the norm for the people of God in the world. So in this world, Jesus says, you will have trouble. But then he gives a wonderful promise, take heart, I've overcome the world. And so we read in the next section, verses um, 5 through 17, um, and as we do, pay attention to the encouragement that the Lord gives to Paul um, so that he might endure suffering in Corinth. We'll pick up the story again in verse 5. <clears throat> when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. 
And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia, the, the Jews, sorry, was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. So we find here Paul doing this ministry in Corinth, preaching the gospel first to the Jews and then also to the Gentiles. And we have some details from his letters to the Corinthians that sort of fill out what was going on in Paul's mind and in his heart at this time. The Apostle Paul was intimidated by these people. And we can't pick up as much of that in this passage as we can, particularly in his first letter to the Corinthians. Paul openly recognizes that these people were intimidating him in his first letter to the Corinthian Christians, which he writes a few years after these events. So describing the state of mind of Paul as these events are unfolding, he wrote to them, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul is saying here that his anxiety had some grounding in, in reality, that there was intimidation happening and these people were against him in his message. Verse 6 said, The Jews who heard his sermon opposed and reviled him. These people didn't just say mean things to him. They didn't just say mean things about him. They were beating people up. They seized Sosthenes, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and beat him publicly. And so God responds to this intimidation in two different ways. The Lord gives encouragement to Paul through a dream. We find that in verses 9 through 11 of what we just read. And the Lord said to Paul one night, this man who was intimidated, do not be afraid. Go on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Do not be afraid. One of the great commands of the scriptures. That little passage of what Paul sees in a vision should sound very familiar because that's one of the resounding messages of God for his prophets and God for his people in the Old and New Testaments. This is basically the same thing that God says to Moses through the burning bush. Do not be afraid. Say what I tell you to say. Go where I tell you to go. This is basically the same message that God gives Joshua as he and the people of God are going into the promised land. Do not be afraid. Surely I'll be with you wherever you go. And this has a lot even more parallels to Jeremiah chapter 1 where the Lord is calling the young prophet Jeremiah to be 
a prophet to speak his word. And God predicts to Jeremiah, there's going to be opposition. There's going to be difficulty. There's even going to be intimidation that happens against him. But don't be afraid. Say what I tell you to say and go where I send you. In these four examples of Moses and Joshua and Jeremiah and Paul, the Lord does not always promise a successful ministry in a worldly sense, in terms of all kinds of conversions happening and financial support that just pours out to demonstrate God's presence. That's not always the promise of God, certainly in the ministry of Jeremiah, often in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And even though he promises to Paul here that no one will attack him In this city, the primary blessing is a spiritual blessing, that God will be with them. When you are struggling, when you are worried, when you are anxious, when you are intimidated, does your hope turn towards the presence of God or does it turn towards some worldly thing? When you are feeling like the Apostle Paul described he was feeling in in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I came to you with much fear and trembling. When you're feeling that way in your workplace, when you're feeling that way heading into a meeting, when you're feeling that way about something you're facing in this life, does your mind turn towards the promises of God to be with you or to some other thing that cannot enable you to endure through suffering? Does your mind turn towards God or turn towards entertainment or the cell phone screen or shopping or social media or do you turn towards the Lord? The spiritual blessing is the secure blessing. That's the the powerful blessing that God gives us in his word. That's the blessing that's promised to the Christian today just like it was promised to the Apostle Paul. The spiritual blessing of God's presence is the effective remedy for our worry. That's what this passage is primarily about. The spiritual blessing of God's presence is the remedy for the problem of our worry. So, what does God do as we move forward a little bit in that passage? The Lord not only gives him a promise of his spiritual blessing, but but the Lord also protects Paul through a civil authority who makes a wise decision. This man, Gallio, We don't want to over-spiritualize the story so much that we ignore the practical thing that God does to spare Paul's life. Where Gallio, this man who is presumably not a believer, not a, a follower of Christ, it's maybe a bit presumptuous to assume that, but very, very few people were in this culture at the time. And yet, even though we could assume that of Gallio, he's still used of God to bless Paul with with freedom. So Paul is accused of false teaching by the Jews, and Gallio responds in this way in verses 14 through 16. If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint, but since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. So we can see here in this passage that God is not just at work in the church, but that God is always at work everywhere in the world, even giving wisdom to civil authorities so that his kingdom might continue breaking forth into the world. The Lord can bend the will of a non-believer in the direction that he wants it to go for the sake of his name and for the sake of his church. In the Reformed Church, we have a high view of 
regeneration of God's work in redeeming us from our sin and from the penalty of our sin, which is hell. We have a high view of what God is doing in the church and in the heart of a Christian, but in the Reformed view, we also have a high view of what God is doing outside the church as well. That God is sovereign not just over the church and over Christians, but that God is sovereign over everything that he has made. And we see that playing out in this story where God shows his sovereignty over the political realm as well. Maybe you've heard the adage before, God can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. And in this story, that's what really what we find happening. Where this, this man, Gallio, makes a good, wise decision to release Paul. And this isn't just by accident. This isn't because all of a sudden he became wise of his own understanding and his own philosophy. This is a blessing of God for Paul through Gallio that he would have wisdom to make a decision that was pleasing to God. So in this story, the Lord does this not only to free Paul from persecution, but he also does this to shame the Jewish mob who should know better because they have the word. An unbelieving Gentile named Gallio is wiser than these people who have been entrusted with the word of God and with knowledge of his covenants. So we find in this statement actually a profound theology of the role of civil government, but that's another sermon for another time. It's an excellent summary, actually, of the function of civil government in relation to the church, Um, one that certainly doesn't get the attention that it deserves, but just as I said, that's probably about a 45-minute sermon in and of itself. So the point here, though, is that the Lord is working in mysterious ways among his people, but also that the Lord is always showing common grace to people who don't follow him, but he enables them to make wise decisions and even um, bless the church, sometimes in very direct ways. When you believe this, this doctrine of common grace, that God is bending the wills of unregenerate people for his own purposes, you will grow in your thankfulness to God for what he's doing not just in the church, but in the world outside the church as well. When you believe this, you'll grow in thankfulness for how God is at work in you, but also you'll grow in thankfulness for how God is at work around you as well, in politics, in economics, in, um, in all the spheres of life. God can work through unbelieving politicians for his glory. That's one of the applications, I think, of this passage. God can work through unbelieving doctors and nurses for his name's sake and for the sake of his people as well. God can work through unbelieving police officers and teachers and authors and musicians, bending their wills to conform to his perfect will so that his name might be magnified in the world. And the reason that we can be thankful for this isn't that some people are actually just really wise of their own accord and their own nature. No, we believe also in the doctrine of total depravity. And so this doesn't mean that we just implicitly trust people who seem to have made a few good decisions like maybe Gallio did in this story. But the reason that we should be thankful is that God is at work in these people's lives so often in spite of their foolishness and their sin. It's often against their worldly efforts and their worldly impulses that God bends their will 
to conform to his. So, what does this mean? It means that we need not fear the world, not just because God is with us, but we need not fear the world because God is also at work in the world as well. You could see there that second addition to, uh, to that statement will, will change how you interact with people who are not believers. We need not fear the world, first, because God is with us, but second, because God is doing things that are good in the world, often through people who are not born again by his common grace. Just starting to close, looking at verses 18 through 23. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila, at Sencre he cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from, from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So this sermon you can see is titled God's Will for Christians. What is it? What is God's will for Christians? What is God's will for you? Well, this will sound redundant, but his will for you is to do his will. <laughs> to open your heart, open your mind, open your desires, and even tr- conform your emotions to, to love his will. And that sounds a little bit silly in its redundancy, but, but that's the will that God has for, for each of his people. It's the will of the Father for Christ that he came to do the Father's will. His mission was to save sinners, and our mission as Christ's followers is to trust him and obey him. Paul reveals that's his heart's desire in verse 21. I will return to you if God wills. And so are you open to God's will in this way? Come what may, are you open to God's will no matter what? It might be to endure persecution for speaking the truth. It might be to endure persecution for following Jesus. And if that's God's will, it's the right way to live. God's will for one young person might be to attend college. His will for another young person might be to do something else after high school. But to be open to whatever the will of God might be is the key, I think, to this passage where the Apostle Paul says there's all of these different places I could be going, all of these different people I could be ministering to, but I've just got to do the will of God. So for one person, God's will is marriage. For another person, his will is singleness. And the key in knowing God's will is first to be absolutely open to whatever it is. That's what we'll sing, or that's what we've already sung earlier in the service. Trust and obey where we sang, what he says we will do, where he sends we will go. Never fear, only trust and obey. So those lyrics are a great summary, not only of Acts 18, but of the whole Christian life. God is working within you to give you peace as you follow Jesus. God is working around you 
so that he will be glorified in your life and at the last day. So trust him and obey him. That is God's will for you today. Amen? Amen. Amen.